why do we love Miro? Well, Miro's visual collaboration platform lets our team work together in real time anywhere. Absolutely. We can organize ideas, visualize plans, create flowcharts, run engaging workshops, you name it. Really, Miro's Canvas has a template to get us started on any project. And video meetings are just way more productive when we can show our team ideas on a Miro board. Honestly, working remotely was nightmarish for us because we felt disconnected. But Miro's online whiteboard gets everyone on the same page. Also, we can use our other favorite tools with Miro. It's kind of like Miro is the center of our work universe. I know that sounds crazy, but yeah, it's how we do big things. Ready to see why our team uses Miro to work together? Getting started is so easy. Sign up today at miro.com. That's m i r o.com. This is the Average to Savage podcast with Paul Garino. Everyone and anyone, athletes, celebs, and much more. What's up, everyone? I'm back for another great episode of Average Savage Podcast. Our special guest today is Lori Leachman, a professor at Duke, an author, and an artist. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Lori, your new book is A King a King of Halloween and Miss Firecracker Queen. So first off, how'd you come up with that name, and what's the book about? Okay, so uh, the book has nothing to do with economics. The book is yeah. a memoir mm-hmm. about growing up in the South, in a football family in the 60s and 70s and into the 1980s. And then the last, roughly about a quarter of the book, is about my father's decline and how we dealt with that from CTE, which, of course, he contracted from a lifetime in football. So the title, The King of Halloween and Miss Firecracker Queen, that is actually my mother and dad. My dad was the king of Halloween in 11th grade, and uh, my mother was, as I like to say, Miss Firecracker Queen. She was voted best body by some fraternity or another at the University of Tennessee, and as I say in the book, that's um, a contest you could only have in the days before political correctness and fake boobs. So, that's the title. (laughs) For sure, yeah. I was super curious on how you got that, so now I know. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, the other piece, wait a minute, let me just yeah. follow up. The other piece on the title is the fact that my dad died right around Halloween. And okay. so that whole, we found that picture of him as the king of Halloween at the, um, what would that be, the, the wake, essentially. Yeah. My mother had all these pictures out, and that one was just laying there, and I was just like blown away by it when I saw it because we had had this whole discussion about could we have a funeral on Halloween, and would that be appropriate? Yeah. And we decided it was fine. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, did you guys know your father had CTE? No. Okay, this is part of the story in uh, the book. My dad was really at the front of the curve with mm-hmm. respect to that. And uh, that is, in this particular case, not a good place to be. What happened for him was he was coaching with Detroit. Mm-hmm. with the Detroit Lions, and he was, you know, following a play on the field, and he got hit on the sidelines. The play went out of bounds. He got hit on the sidelines. He fell on the AstroTurf. He had a concussion, blew out his knee, already had bad knees. So in the off season, he had to have a knee replacement, so he had surgery. He was recovering from a concussion. And between the two of those things, you know, after that, he was really never the same. 
he could remember all things football, but he could not remember where he parked his car. If he were in a, a stadium that was not the home stadium, he couldn't figure out how to get in and out of it. Uh, he couldn't figure out how to find the field, mm-hmm. right? And uh, needless to say, uh, that was quite problematic to continue working. Yeah, for sure. So I know, like, because CT is, like, bigger, like, research now, but, like, so how did you guys, like, think about that? Like, find out about it? Yeah. Uh, well, basically what happened with my father is that, you know, he took retirement, and mm-hmm. we thought that he was just, you know, sort of depressed about retiring and all that, that it happened too soon, right? Yeah. Yeah. That he was sort of pushed into it because his mental capacity was diminishing. And, and he started to drink heavily, and which, you know, we now know addiction is sort of one of the critical things that goes with uh, mental decline, particularly CTE. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we all thought that what was happening to him mentally was of his own doing, okay? That yeah. it was related to the drinking, and, you know, he should just heal himself, basically. And what happened is that uh, he ended up in the hospital with another blow to the head because he'd been drinking heavily. And he was quite belligerent in the hospital, and they restrained him on a restraining board and laid him horizontal, and he um, vomited and aspirated vomit and ended up being in the ICU. And if he had not been such a big, powerful guy, it would have killed him right, uh, right then and there. But that was then the beginning of our actually really getting treatment for what was happening to him. As soon as he was out of the hospital, which took about six weeks, we brought him to Duke and started having him being treated by the head of the Neurological Disorders Clinic at Duke. Mm-hmm. When we went in there, Dr. Schmeichel, was the, was the head of the clinic, said, it is totally lifestyle and Duke. And we thought we knew what that meant. We thought it meant that he had these two blows to the head after 60 and that he was a drinker. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we understood it, right? Yeah. At that point, you know, we, there was no more alcohol in the home. You know, he totally cleaned himself up and got a whole new routine going. He relearned how to read and write, which he had lost that capacity, all kinds of things. And then that was for about four years. He was being treated, going back and forth. And then one day I was reading a New York Times article about a retired football great that had CTE and what his family was going through. And as soon as I started reading the article, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is everything that we've lived through. And I called my mother and I said, you've got to go by the New York Times and read this article. She did. And at his next appointment, I took it in with us to uh, the neurological clinic and laid it on the desk of Dr. Schmeichel, and I said, what about this? And he said, that's exactly what he had. And when I told you that uh, it was uh, lifestyle-induced, football was exactly what I meant. And that's when we had an understanding of what was happening, and at that point, that was at least 10 or 12 years into his decline. And how, how many concussions did he have throughout, like, the years? Well, what we know of is that he had eight before the age of 22. That's what he could remember. Hey, that was while playing football, right? You, right, and you need to recall that he's remembering this after he's had two past the age of 60. 
Yeah. And so it's clear that can't be the you know the full count. Yeah. But for sure, eight before the age of twenty-two, and two after six. Yeah, that's definitely a lot. So, what did your yeah. uh, family think about you writing this book? <laughs> In the beginning, everybody was very supportive because nobody thought it would amount much. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then what happened is, I mean, I was very lucky in this whole process. I didn't, never had any intention to do this. And a publisher actually came to me and said, we want to publish the book. And, you know, it's a timely topic, et cetera. And uh, so that sort of put the wheels in motion. And then right before I was getting ready to turn in the, the final galleys, uh, my older sister said to me, you know, mom's not really happy about you publishing this book. And mm-hmm. at that point, I hadn't taken any money, and I hadn't turned in the final manuscript. And I said, look, I can pull it, because I wrote it for my mother, right? To yeah. try to make some sense of everything we lived through. And we chatted about it, and she said, no, you can't do that. You know, it's sort of a damn if you do, damn if you don't. And basically, what was true is my mother did not want the rest of the world to know our dirty laundry. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, in particular, you know, that my dad took up drinking and uh, that, you know, there were a lot of very messy, sort of ugly things in the decline, which, you know, I whitewashed that. Mm-hmm. But since the book has come out, she's actually been quite pleased because former coaches' wives, people she knew through her life have written her and said, you know, you're just an amazing woman. I had, you know, no idea uh, how strong you were. Uh, so it's been a really, it's been a really sweet gift. Yeah. But there was a lot of anxiety about getting there. Maybe that's the best way I should say it. Yeah, I can totally see all that. So what was your main motivation to write this book? Well, I wrote it for my mother, as I said. Yeah. Basically, what was true is that, you know, my dad had this really long, terrible decline. And when he died, it was a relief. And I, I, that probably sounds terrible to say, but anybody that, you know, lived with uh, people that are really losing their faculties, both physically and mentally, understand that, you know, you can live so long, you're not the same person. Right, and your quality of life is gone, and all of those things. And so uh, that was true for my dad, and his death was uh, a sweet blessing, ultimately. But and I thought because of that, you know, my mother would recover pretty quickly and start to travel and do some things, and that didn't happen. And so I started to think about how could we, you know, sort of help her get past that. And one of the things that I thought was that we need to have a bigger sense of the whole story, not just the last 20 years, which were pretty gruesome. And so I had some friends who were writers, and I tried to get them to actually write the story. And they said to me, can't do it. It's your story. You have to write it. Uh, And I said, I'm not a writer. So I think it just perked around in me for a while, and then a couple of years ago, I was on vacation, writing a lot, I was reading a lot, and I put a book down one day and said, I've got a story, and I think I know how to write it, and I just started writing vignettes. And then I got a lot of help from my writer friends, from my colleagues at work, from people that knew me, and uh, and the King of Halloween, the Firecracker Queen, is a result of that. 
So I really wanted my mother to see her life in the total arc of it rather than just the last 20 years. And I think now that's happening. I also want to say I was reading a book at the time. For three years, I read nothing but memoirs. And I was reading Sally Mann's book, Hold Still. And Sally Mann is a photographer, and she has a line in her book that says, the photograph becomes the memory. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I read that, I knew that was true. You know, your memory of your Christmas is what's in that photograph and what surrounds it, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought the story can do that. And uh, I, that sort of put wind in my sail and made me rededicate myself to the project and finishing the book. Yeah, that's awesome. So what would uh, your hopes be for uh, people reading it? What would, what would their takeaway be from it? Well, the first thing I hope people would take from the book is that, you know, we loved football, okay? And yeah. football uh, defined everything about who we were as a family. And uh, the intent of my book is not to, you know, hammer football. It is to uh, illuminate some of the things that are, quite beautiful about it and with the hopes that people will dedicate themselves to reform of the game. So that would be one thing. Secondly, uh, I would hope that other families that are living through uh, issues with loved ones that are suffering from cognitive decline and not just CTE because there are a lot of other things that are associated with repeated head injury like, you know, Parkinson's, dementia, early early onset dementia and things of that sort of nature, that uh, they would have a little more grace for themselves and what they go through. One of the things that I write about in the book is that I was very impatient and not at all understanding of what my father was going through. And I, in fact, made his journey harder uh, because of my judgmentalness and my attempts, quote unquote, to uh, help. in the situation. And I think there are a lot of other people that, you know, have the same sort of reactions and responses that I did. And I hope that everyone would give themselves a little grace and forgiveness uh, because we're all sort of doing the best we can in the situation that we don't fully have an understanding of, okay? And I'm part of a a group, this group of women of the NFL, Mm -hmm. which is wives and daughters and mothers and that sort of thing. And I can tell you that we have not seen the peak of this yet. It is pervasive and it is happening to young families where the husband is maybe 40 years old mm-hmm. just retiring they have young children and uh, my heart breaks for that and uh, so I am hoping that other people going through that will take some comfort from what we went through yeah, yeah it's definitely sad um, I know you said people are reaching out to your mom uh, I'm assuming other people are reaching out to you too, right? Yeah, I mean, really, one of the things that's been so sweet about this call is um, people that sort of knew my dad or knew us or knew of my dad are getting in contact. For example, about three weeks ago, I got an email from a guy named Ron Smith, and mm-hmm. Ron emailed me and said, I've just read your book. It's great. Uh, Lamar Leachman was a mythical figure. Uh, I played against him in high school in Savannah. He recruited me. 
to play at the University of Richmond. Everyone that knew him uh, thought he was mythical, and you have done a great service to him by telling this story. And it turns out that Ron Smith uh, was the Poet Laureate of Virginia from 2014 to 2016. So there are all these little ripples that are starting to sort of converge and come back. Yeah. And it's just really sweet. Yeah, yeah, sure. So what do you think the NFL should do to try to, I guess, prevent CTE? I know it's not preventable, but lessen it, I guess. Right. I was hoping we would sort of get to this because that'd be another mission with my book. Given what we've lived through and what is now happening uh, more pervasively, I would hope that there would be some momentum behind reforming the game. I am fully aware of the wonderful things that come from football, the sense of camaraderie, of being part of something bigger, the fact that, you know, it cuts across socioeconomic class, across race, you know, all of those things. I I get that. And those are valuable things. And so let's try to make the game more robust going forward. And I think that there are quite a lot of things that the NFL could be doing with respect to that. Unfortunately, I don't see much happening. Number one, I'd say I don't understand why there is not a dedicated subcommittee on the NFL Rules Committee that is undertaking reform of the game specifically with the intent to reduce head injury. Rule changing is very easy in the NFL. Why do they not have a broad representative body, and this means players, coaches, and owners that are real, and physicians that are really talking about how we can change the nature of play? Okay? That's number one. Number two, there are small things that they can do that won't change your fan experience at all with respect to the game. And let me just give you an example of one. In the CFL, they line up essentially with a yard between the offense and defensive line. In the NFL, they line up with about 10 to 12 inches. Okay? And just that little difference makes a huge difference in the momentum coming off the line. And linemen, centers, those are the number one positions for repeated head injury, the incidence of CTE, et cetera. So just changing that difference on the line wouldn't change your experience at all. It would reduce the momentum coming off the line and so some of the trauma from impact, okay? Yes, sure. I, I mean, clearly equipment changes are happening. The introduction of technology is happening but those are not a a complete solution, okay? In the Ivy League, they're experimenting with how they practice and uh, not just in terms of what's full contact practice, but on certain teams, they have half the team practicing with a helmet, the other half practicing without a helmet and trying to assess the impact of that. So there are things you can do with respect to practice because, look, you practice a lot more than you play, right? Um, And, you know, even with the rule changes like the rule change they just made about head down and penalties, you know, those rule changes are only as good as the enforcers, right? And we just saw in the last week of play that that was really ad hoc. 
Things were called that shouldn't have been. Things that should have been called clearly were not. And uh, so I would say better officiating is also going to be really part of the solution. Yeah, for so sure. I just think there are lots of things uh, that could be happening. And where they are happening, they are not happening in the NFL. Yeah. And this, to me, is the problem because my view is, and I've been at a lot of different institutions over the years, I'm an academic by training, and what separates a quality institution from one that is not is leadership. Yeah, and sure. the top of the football pyramid is the NFL, and we have not seen the appropriate leadership with respect to this issue. Yeah. I think there are a lot of reasons for that, which we could talk about or not, but it's a problem in my view. Yeah, definitely. Now, uh, being a professor at Duke, are you currently doing anything um, with the football team there? Or- well, uh, Paul, one of the things that I did do in uh, February is that I worked with some of my colleagues in the law school, principally a woman named Dorian Coleman, who is a runner mm-hmm. and writes about sports law. And we put together a forum, a one-day forum, on football, head injury, and the future. And we had historians talk about the role of football and culture. We had neuroscientists from Duke and, and the surrounding community. Some had been on the NFL Cushion Committee. Some had been on the player side. We had uh, biomedical engineers talk about, you know, equipment and technological changes. We had the head of uh, ethics at Duke Hospital talk about the issue of informed consent. And we also uh, brought in Harry Carson uh, to talk about essentially the future of football and how we go forward. And that for me was actually hugely illuminating and uh, very, very valuable in thinking more comprehensively uh, about the issue. Our intent is to actually write a white paper about it, which sort of lays out the parameters and the issue. But none of us have gotten to that yet just because of other things on our plate. So uh, that's a long answer to we aren't doing anything specifically with football, but we did invite the coaches, the team, the trainer came as their representative. And you have to understand that when you put together programs like this and CTE is the topic, people are very reticent that are currently actively engaged in the sport Mm -hmm. to participate. Yeah, for sure. I I could see that. It's a a catch-22 for them. And so uh, they are very sympathetic, aware of the issue, but they were not represented on the panel. Gotcha. But would you like to work with them more? Yeah. I mean, I know Coach Cuffcliffe, and Mm -hmm. Coach Cuffcliffe actually knew my dad through reputation. Uh, I know Kevin White, the AD. I think they're both quality people. I had uh, a couple of football players in my class this past spring. I invited all of them to the event, and one came. So, yes, you know, I would like to have uh, more interplay and voice in in that space, but I recognize it's a really, really, really tricky space. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you have kids that are living their dream, and you're asking them to think about the downside of that. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you think uh, football is going to be around in, say, 50 years? I hope so. I hope it won't look like it does now. <laughs> yeah. 
exactly, but I hope so because I just, as I said, I think there are a lot of things that young men get from uh, playing a sport. It doesn't have to be football. Yeah. But, uh, you know, football is one of the dominant ones. So uh, I would hope that that would be the case. But let me say a couple of things with respect to that. It's, it's already clear that, you know, middle class folks are not letting their kids play football in the numbers that they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't let my sons play football. And I had the luxury of having a good job and being able to afford their college. So I didn't need a scholarship for them, okay? And if the NFL doesn't, and if football doesn't reform itself, essentially what's going to be true is that it's going to be a ghetto. I mean, it's approaching that now, but it is clearly going to be that, and it's going to be a gladiator sport, all right? And I don't know what the appeal, broad appeal of that will then look like. Hopefully it would be less, but... I don't know, you know, that's a sort of, you don't know until you get there kind of thing. But I would I would hope that there would be some move to eliminate contact uh, football for anyone below the age of 16. And uh, this is an aside, in the 50s, the American Pediatric Association recommended that no one play contact football before the age of 12. Yeah. By the 60s, they had rescinded that recommendation from pressure but now we know there was a real reason for that, okay? And uh, so I don't think anybody should be playing contact football before the age of 16. Uh, I think the NFL, if it had a real vision to the future, should be providing equipment to every public high school team across the country. And it's a tax deduct for them. It makes the game safer. It helps mm-hmm. shore up their pipeline. And let me just give you an example of how they could start, all right? It doesn't have okay. to be all or nothing at once. What they can do is they could provide every player in high school football with a good mouth guard. One thing we know is a good mouth guard really makes a difference and the potential for shearing and head impact and the severity of it. And they could even say compliments of the NFL because your safety is important to us. Okay? (laughs) It'd be a win-win for everybody. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. And so there there are things that they could be doing right now that are small, that are trivial to their bottom line that would be meaningful. And this is what I mean. I don't see the leadership at the top on this issue. But that's a long answer. Will it will it be here in the future? I hope so, but it will require change for that to happen. Yeah, definitely for sure. Uh, you ready for some lighter questions? Yeah. So, uh, why'd you become a professor? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, Paul. Somebody asked me that one time at a business conference, and I said to them, "Oh, you thought I should have been the homecoming queen." <laughs> <laughs> Okay, because what they were saying to me is, oh, you're not ugly and you're an academic, right? Uh. (laughs) I knew exactly what was being asked of me. Why did I become an academic? I became an academic because of the lifestyle. There were, I'm not built to work 50 weeks a year, nine to five. That has never been my MO. And uh, academics provided me a setting in which I could have a career, not just a job. Mm -hmm. and have time off and flexibility. 
it allowed me to be the type of parent I wanted to be. I wanted to be able to go to my kids' soccer games with them and take them to the doctor and have the flexibility for that and be successful. And that was one of the few environments where that was a possibility. So uh, that's really why I got a Ph.D., I started with a master's degree teaching and figured out this was going to be the right sort of rhythm for me and then went back and got the PhD. And I want to add here that I think that one of the reasons I was able to do that is the household I grew up in because my dad was friggin' relentless. And you never quit before you cross the goal line. And the goal line in this case was the Ph.D., okay? Gotcha. I dropped out for uh, two years after I got my master's degree and taught at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. And my dad about lost his mind. He called me every week to tell me that I was a college dropout. Okay? <laughs> and now I had a master's degree, right? Yeah. It was just relentless. And uh, he was not satisfied until I went back and finished. And so, you know, while I did not do it for my father, I am sure part of that upbringing enabled me to complete the task. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. What What's it like being a professor at Duke? It's great. Yeah. Oh, my God. I've been in, you know, a lot of institutions, and I can say without a doubt that Duke is the best institution I've ever been at. Uh, Part of it is, of course, it's resource-rich. Part of it is, I believe, that it is private and not subject to state legislatures and that sort of craziness. And part of it is that the quality of the student body is so great that you can always shoot for the top. Because the nature of them and their competition with each other, they will they will always figure out how to get above the bar, and that means it's it's wonderful to teach. You can do things that you just can't do and expect things you can't expect in a more typical class setting. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, how did you get into art and uh, painting? One of the things I write about in the book is the fact that I grew up in a house uh, where there was no art, there was no music, it was all about competition, okay, and intellect, and uh, part of that was because uh, my dad was colorblind, okay, I realized that he, you know, he was colorblind and tone deaf, and all of our life just revolved around sport, but I always liked art, okay, and I always sort of dabbled in it, but never felt like I wanted to have that to have to make a living at it and then so I always tinkered and then when I turned 50 one of the things that happened is my brother-in-law died very quickly of of leukemia Mm -hmm. and I thought to myself oh my life is passing I'm 50 years old you know what if I only have five more years to live am I doing what I want to do and the answer to that was no Mm-hmm. So I basically, you know, had a life of epiphany and quit my job and, and and said to my chair, you know, I quit because I had a big administrative job at Duke. I'm not going to leave you high and dry, but I just can't. I don't want to do it anymore. And maybe you'll convert me back to full-time teaching. Maybe not, but I still quit. My department was great for me, and they did do that, and I took it. A sabbatical mm-hmm. and took a painting class 
and that was when I was 50, and that was sort of the beginning of it. I mean, I'd always been doing it, but that was when I said, okay, I've been a dilettante at this, I've been a dilettante at it because I didn't want to confront failure, that's cowardly, I'm going to dedicate myself to painting, and uh, I'm going to have a strategy that within five years, I'm going to have a show of my work. And I made that within two years, and I've been doing it ever since. Gotcha. So that's the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. So last one, do you have any other projects that you're working on now? Well, I've just finished a whole painting series, mm -hmm. and I had a really productive July and August, a beautiful series I'm doing, and if, if I must say so myself. <laughs> and um, I'm working on getting a show for that in the spring when I'm in Durham. And then... Uh, I have outlines of two books, but I only do one thing well at a time, and so right now it's all about this book and with some painting on the side. In the spring I'll be teaching, and so it will be all about teaching and trying to keep this book in play. And it'll really be next year before I start to turn and think about uh, writing another book Mm -hmm. or starting a new painting series. But those would be the, you know, the two things on the agenda. I'm no longer doing active econ research. I've just, that's all part of my life epiphany at 50 situation. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, could you let the listeners know where to find your book and uh, how to contact you if they want to reach out for questions? Great. Uh, you can find my book on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. Again, it's The King of Halloween and Miss Firecracker Queen by Lori Leachman. It's also available at Walmart and Target, uh, particularly through all the online outlets. Mm -hmm. And you can reach me by emailing me at Lori, L-O-R-I dot Leachman, L-E-A-C-H-M-A-N, at Duke.edu, or Lulu, L-U-L-U, to Leachman, L-E-A-C-H-M-A-N, at gmail.com. Perfect. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Paul. Have a great day. Uh, you too. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.